This week on the Music Universe podcast, Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock discuss their new book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. Join us now for a little insight into the making and inspiration behind the new book. Welcome to a new edition of the Music Universe podcast. My name is Buddy. And I'm Matt. And we are thrilled to be with you today. Our guests are Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock, authors of it ain't nothing but a good time. No, I shouldn't try to sing. Gentlemen, gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Doing well. That, that was impressive. Impressively <laughs> sad. I know. Nothing but a good time. The uncens- uncensored history of, 80s har- of the 80s hard rock explosion. First of all, perfect. Uh, Bonjour and Beanstalk, perfect last names. Reminds me of Bialystock and Bloom from the producers. Uh, just fantastic, fantastic. Can, before we get into the book, how did you guys uh, come to work together on this project? Um, we we have known each other for probably 25 years. We, we spent many of those years working together at Guitar World Magazine, um, starting in the late 90s and then, you know, for decades. And then since then, you know, we, we have always been in touch we've always this is the music that we both grew up loving we used to talk about possibly doing a book like this when we were both working in the guitar world offices which is more than a decade ago at this point um so it was something that was always sort of in the back of our minds to do and then it just it kind of took being in the right time and place to to pull the pull the trigger on it i'd say what made this the right time and place um I think, you know, and again, like the right time, given book time, we started this project four years ago. So it took, it took like, you know, a long time to get done. But I do think we either got lucky or had a feeling, I'm not sure, I'll, I'll credit, us, credit us with a little bit of foreknowledge or something. It felt like it, it was indeed like, about that we needed to do it now. And I think we were right because you, you suddenly, the book is coming out and I wish we really had timed it this way, but like, you know, Cobra Kai has all these eighties bands in the, in the, um, in the music and there's a lot of eighties stuff going on. And it seems to be landing at a time where this music and this era is sort of feeling very current and people are, are, are thinking about it a lot. The, the Motley Crue movie was last year. Um, so maybe, you know, all of these projects probably took about the same amount of time to get done <laughs> as our book. Like suddenly, suddenly there must have been something in the water or the air, you know, in 2017 where people were like, I think it's time to, to, to do this project I've been thinking about. And um, yeah, we just, we, just got, we, we just got to work. I mean, the first year of working on the book, we didn't even have a book deal. So we didn't even know if it would ever actually exist. You know, we had to do... A whole bunch of sample, like sample chapters and stuff, before we even knew. But so it 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 took quite a while. So now was really five years ago, four years ago. <laughs> well, um, I'm a huge fan of that era. I mean, some of my favorite bands: Poison, Bon Jovi, Cinderella, you name them. From that era, it it's a really unique error and um reading what i've read so far because i didn't get through it all yet just really paints that picture from the artists themselves How, what gave you guys the idea to actually let the artist tell the story through 
interviews where you just kind of put them together to to create that story for each chapter i think that you hit the nail on the head a little bit part a big part of it was this idea of like let the artists and the and the other people managers you know agents and label people so on so on let them speak and in turn that helps to put the reader just right there in the moment um, that's one of the great things about an oral history is it really just it, it just can bring you to that time and place and really paint the picture in a way that I don't know that you get the same experience secondhand from a writer. Um, and that's, you know, that's all to say, like we did have discussions about whether or not to approach it that way, or, or if we should just write the book. Um, our agent was instrumental in also, you know, pushing us toward the oral history um, design. But, but that was really it. It was just like, you know, what, what would I want to read if I was going to read a book about this time? And it's like, I just want to hear what the people who were there had to say and hear it unfiltered from them. And within that, of course, there's a lot of crafting that has to go on from the authors yeah. in order to tell the story. Um, and you're really, you're telling the story that you want to tell or that you think needs to be told. Um, but it just seemed to make more sense to give as much space as possible to the people who were there to voice their expression of what it was like. Was that a challenge trying to figure out how to craft the narrative and, and kind of, I'm sure the interviews weren't exactly the most linear. Uh, was it tough to whittle it down and, and put it in, in the order that it's in? Because it's really engrossing and you're, it's not just random thoughts. It really is the history, the story. It was, it was definitely a challenge. I mean, how we basically what we did is we put together, we did all of these interviews and then we created these large strands and sections of the book. Like we had, you know, like part of my gig was I like, I wrote the whole White Lion story and the whole Warren story. Um, Rich did a lot of the LA stuff. So we had these long linear stories. And then what we did is we diced them up into shorter, into the chapters. And we, um, fit them all together and I mean we spent like a couple days literally just across from each other at Rich's house like figure slicing up like okay so warrant the fifth warrant chapter will go here and then the seventh poison chapter goes after that and and really making sure that even though every transition there's going to be a break that it somehow felt good moving from one section to the other so we were we were really super conscious about that and then you know also very aware like oh you know blah blah from my interview said something about this thing you're working on and making sure that each of us that we were sharing all of the information so that we didn't th that everyone had access to everything so it was but it was it was definitely not easy <laughs> it was it was that was the hardest part of the book I think yeah yeah and you guys have I mean there's like I, I didn't count how many people but I, probably about 200 people that you interviewed. How did you, um, I mean, that had to be a process in itself just to get those interviews secured. It was, and you're, you're right. There's a little over 200 interviews, I think. Wow. Um, and that was another thing where it was sort of like once when we first started and once, especially after we did the sample chapters and we knew that this was going to be a thing, it was just like, go after everybody and it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't like okay let's focus on this part of the story 
let's get all of these people and then write that part and then move on. It was like, you just reach out to everybody and you just start gathering all this information, which also means that, you know, one day you're interviewing somebody about something that is completely different than what the next person is going to be doing, the next person, the next person. So you're preparing for all these different things and just logging it until, until later where you, you might not revisit this, some of this stuff until two years later, actually, because you're just going off on a, in other directions. So the first year or maybe even two years was just getting interviews. And that happens through a lot of different avenues. A lot of it is just, you know, the relationships that we have from 25 years of being in this world. And then from there, it's like you talk to some people and they, they you earn their trust and they set you up with other people, whether it's like former bandmates or their former manager or so, so on and so forth. And they, and they will, you know, do a sort of third party qualification. They're like, Hey, talk to this person, you know, they're, they're legit. And so you're, and then other people, you're just, you find them on Facebook and you send them a message explaining who you are and what you're doing and you hope that they respond. So it really was just find everybody by whatever means necessary and then just go from there. And did you guys uh, go after people and you don't have to give names, were there people that you really wanted that you weren't able to get? There were some, you know, and, and it's not even like, um, like one person that we went, most of the people we didn't get, we knew we weren't gonna get and we made like one attempt. But for example, like John Bon Jovi, we, we were sort of pretty sure that you know, his, his career at this point has so far like transcended that era that mm -hmm. we were pretty sure that we uh, weren't probably going to secure, a, you know, a, an interview with him where we were wanted to talk about the 80s. Um, we like sent one request, but like we knew that that probably wouldn't be something that we were able to, to, to pull off. There were a couple other people. Mostly we got, you know, um, the people that 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 we really wanted to talk to there weren't like you know there were a couple where it was a nail biter you know i think i have 18 months worth of emails <laughs> trying, trying to secure an uh, uh interview with sebastian brock because he because he's like when he's on tour he doesn't do any press because he's he's fully like singing focused and stuff and so that that you know there were some like that like whoa are we not gonna we gotta get him and like rich would rich and i would be on the phone like well what if we don't get sebastian but most most people in the end came through we were very very fortunate i love the subtitle here the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion what what made it an explosion of a particular genre how did it sort of seem to all hit at once I think that there's a couple things that you can point to. Um, I mean, very literally speaking, is, is you know one one explosive moment is Quiet Riot, mm -hmm. you know, breaking through on MTV with Come On Feel the Noise, uh, which is really a moment where, you know, that they open that door and like all these bands just walk through, and you know, the fact that it was Quiet Riot is like, well, I mean, that was a, that was a pretty perfect song. I mean, it was, it was a song that could really penetrate the mainstream and there's in the book, it's actually explained like why it was that song and how their producer Spencer Proffer actually had a vision for that song becoming the type of, 
you know, anthem that it did become. So, so it made sense that it was Quiet Riot, but it, all, it could have been another one of the bands. I mean, it was, I think it was inevitable that the confluence of this type of music that was so highly visual and so catchy that when something like MTV came into existence, like eventually the two would merge. Um, so, you know, I guess to answer your, I'm answering your question with one pinpointed moment, but I think one of the things that caused the explosion is the way this music was set up. And then when something like MTV came into existence, like it was, it was inevitable that it would at least, you know, take over some part of the mainstream and some part of, of teenage kids' imagination going forward. What surprised you the most to learn about the history of this music? I mean, 25 years in journalism, you, I'm sure you knew a lot, but what surprised you during your research for this? I think for, for me, and almost going again back to the early times and, and you know, quickly rehashing the Quiet Riot thing is like, the, you don't, we didn't realize as kids, like I was, you know, 13 when Come On Feel, maybe I was 11 when Come On Feel the Noise comes out, that a lot of these bands were like, the, the, that at the time that this music gains popularity until that Quiet Riot moment, the labels want nothing to do with it. Like that's mm -hmm. what really surprised me is that these bands, a lot of these bands had been laboring since the, the mid seventies. George Lynch had been on the strip since the mid seventies. You know, he was a contemporary with Randy Rhodes and Van Halen. A lot of these people had really been there for a long time. Twisted Sister on the, on the, um, on the East coast. Um, also, you know, working through the whole seventies. So the fact that, this whole thing sort of happened by accident that the industry in itself had no like that it was totally unfabricated you know like it wasn't like some master plan like we're going to get these guys and the tight pants and the long hair and we're going to sell a million records the labels had no interest in it they they wanted the next elvis costello the next knack the next you know go-go's um they thought these guys were dinosaurs so like the music that really came to dominate 80s rock had been completely written off in the early 80s as like this stuff is over that's like zeppelin and like these that's that that's last decade and then it came back and sort of dominated the whole decade and as kids receiving this stuff from mtv i don't think we were aware of how long that first wave of bands had been waiting in the wings you know and right. like even as journalists it really hadn't We've talked to, I've interviewed Van Halen and lots of other, these other people from these eras. And the, just that whole picture of that sort of them being ready to go for so long was not something that had at all been part of my consciousness. Yeah, and uh, I know with that came grunge relatively quickly and almost like, like the book says, almost like an overnight thing there went. There went the 80s and uh, <clears throat> there was so much authenticity with the 80s that I feel really made it just stand out. I know that Poison used to uh, create their own pyrotechnics and create their own stage shows from scratch. They didn't have the backing that they had. And then, of course, they they got signed to Enigma and Capital and it went from there. But so much of that, yes, they, they might have, you know, had the, the flamboyancy of some of the 70s rock but it's just the music to me just makes it, it it's all organic not that grunge wasn't but it was just a different style of organic rock that i think really struck people and very visual 
too that I think helped with that. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And, and what you said is exactly right. It, it was very organic and not that grunge wasn't or not that anything else isn't. But I think that's the thing about this music is that people look at it differently than they look at all these other types of music. And it's seen as this thing that was very, you know, a corporate creation and highly produced and you know very slick and so on and so forth when yeah it, it it became that and it was that for some of the bands but even some of these bands that you really associate with that such as a poison because of the way that they looked and the way that they presented themselves it comes from a very diy place and yeah they're creating their own stage shows in the early days they're doing everything on their own they're putting out their own records you know I mean, poison puts out the first record on, on enigma but for they do it for something like twenty three thousand dollars it's like nothing and then it gets picked up by capital um and all the bands before them whether it's dockin or motley crew or rat or whatever they're either self-releasing or they're putting out records on really small labels that maybe one person is just operating so this mu this music is coming from a really grassroots organic place, a very DIY place, but it's not, people don't think of it that way, the way they think of punk or the way they think of indie rock, when really it's, it, it's exactly that way. It's the same exact thing and maybe more so. Why has 80s hard rock stayed in the hearts and minds of that generation of fans so fervently and unlike any kind of uh, music before or since? I think because it was, you know, part of, it celebrated youth and it celebrated like a carefreeness and it celebrated like a party and, and a belief, you know, your belief about these bands when you watched a, a Poison video or even like a Cinderella video or these bands on tour and stuff was that they were like living your best life. You know, it was, there was an escapism to it, um, an aspirational aspect to it where you're like, I wanna be that guy or, you know, um, and so I think for a lot of people, it has a very pure memory. Like when they were listening to this music when they were young is when they were having fun. You know, this music is um, associated with good times. There's no mistake why we call our book Ain't Nothing But A Good Time. You know, it was, it's a pleasant memory in people, you know, in, in, in people's rear view mirrors. And I think the fact that it was like taken away from everyone so quickly for about 10 years, um, might have something to do with it but it yeah. you know as well but I think it really is that like this is a, a music that recalls and maybe even if you had a crappy childhood growing up in the 80s this recalls the good times for, for most people and it probably makes them feel even if they didn't have a particularly pleasant run in their adolescence like oh those times were great look Ricky you know CC DeVille's running across the stage like everything um it really was that there was an escape to it that I think is really important. And even when you go back and I do it, you know, even having written this book, I'll go watch videos on, on YouTube once in a while to recharge my batteries. And there's like something about seeing a band and like a guitar player, like jumping off one of these ego ramps or like running up a thing and like flipping his guitar around his neck. And you're like, I feel much better now. Yeah. You know? I've always wished that if we could make, uh, a DeLorean like Back to the Future <laughs> Sunset Strip during the mid 1980s and experience this 
in person because it's just it's fascinating when you think about just how busy it was and just how successful they all became and they were living that sex drugs rock and roll lifestyle that everybody had seemed that and if you're in a band they wanted to achieve that i think so and i think um you know when these when these guys in the bands talk about that time like they pretty much all describe at least the sunset strip the same way which which makes you realize like that that's probably how it was you know it's always some form of like 24 7 party or 24 7 mardi gras sodom and gomorrah like all this type of stuff that they all have this this sort of group think memory of it um and yeah i mean there were there were probably thousands of bands and there were uh, there were certainly thousands of fans that were out every night you know probably of the week at at one point and so that's another reason why it felt it felt necessary to sort of capture this and to explain what it was because it's whatever you feel about the music or the culture behind it it was a real moment in history that existed and that hasn't existed before or since and most likely never will again. So it's worth, it's worth chronicling and, and letting people see what it was. There's a moment in the book where Stevie Rochelle of the band Tough, like he's just gotten to LA and he goes to the whiskey and he meets a girl in the whiskey who, or woman, from, young woman in the whiskey, who's I think in LA from like Alaska with her parents. And they 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 talk for like three minutes and within like then within five minutes they're out back of the club behind a dumpster like having sex and then they kind of and then they both go back in the club and they never see each other again and we didn't put that and like we didn't put that in the book just to have like a random prurient moment of 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 like random sex in it we put it in there because like I think if you extrapolate that times like 500,000 other happenings. I think that we put it in there because that's, I think, really how it was. You know, like that's what could happen to you. And like, if you were a good looking guy showing up at the whiskey on a Tuesday night, you could end up behind the dumpster with like a really, like, it was totally like free. And it really, I think it really was the party that people say it was. So I would definitely, if you can find that DeLorean, I would say <laughs> do it. Oh, it's something I've, I, I'm actually moved out here from Nashville and I, I was told whenever we were the rock band that I was in was moving out here that, oh, you're going to make 20 grand playing here one night. You're going to make 30 grand. This was 12 years ago. So we got out here and of course we were naive. We were very disappointed that you had to actually pay them to play. So it kind of just brings back those, those thoughts like, man, if the Sunset Strip was what it used to be where there's maybe thousands of people on the street each night that that is super cool and, and i know they they capitalize that in this book it's just um great storytelling great interviews and they they really bring the lot. so i i am super glad that you guys put this book out in the format that you did and with that i also wanted to bring up that in the uh, intro you guys also make it clear that this isn't an apology book no one is apologizing for that culture back then how important is that in this crazy cancel culture society that we're in that that disclaimer so to speak is in there so people are aware that this is just who they were then they're not that now but this is who they were i think that it wasn't 
necessary maybe to put that in, but we felt that it was necessary because there is, yeah, I mean, we're living in a different world now. This is 30, 40 years later, people act differently. Like what is acceptable is different. Um, but as far as what happened then, I mean, that's what happened, you know? And like to, to try to spin it any other way uh, would have been disingenuous and would have, would have kind of made the whole endeavor pointless. Um, and I think even to talk to these people and try to get them to maybe, you know, apologize or try to explain away what happened back then, like, isn't really the point. I think that you just want them to tell you what happened and how they see it through their eyes. And that's the, you know, people can interpret it however they want and they can feel about it however they want, but it doesn't change what happened. Like, this is what happened. Yeah. Yeah, and and like it's not we you know we were careful. There's nothing like evil in the book that we're sure. apologizing for. You know what I mean? Like it's not um. You know, there's no like real instances of like 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 sexual like the abuse or like real. You know, we first of all the people who were interviewing um. Are smart enough not to like dig themselves into a hole you know i think that and also have evolved in their own sensibilities but um you know i my experience interviewing at least 100 people for this book is um that most of these people were like really pretty good good dudes and in my experience interviewing all of the members of vixen um you know they certainly maybe didn't always love you know, I think that the, the, the way, in a weird way, the way female fans allowed themselves to be, but like Vixen, their experience once they're signed is that they're treated very respectfully. Like I'm not trying to whitewash like, oh, you know, like I'm aware that there were sexist videos and sexist album covers and this, that, the other thing, but we did interview enough women who were club bookers and radio promoters and publicists and and worked with management and this that the other thing that like there's not like some incredibly toxic and horrifying culture of of misogyny that we're covering up you know it seemed and again i'm not saying that like everything was how it should have been but it it didn't come across as like some horrifying thing in in our reporting you know and, and I, again i'm not speaking to everybody's experience but you know um there wasn't a lot of us doing interviews and then coming back and we're like oh my god you're not going to believe what we just you know, i just heard and like we can't print this and you know should we call the cops and you know <laughs> um, like it, it, the experience of most people was you know pretty pleasant and you know for people who worked at mtv or at the label some of them are like yeah i thought that video was ridiculous and annoying but you know what like i you know I, I still had, I was working at this record label and I was enjoying myself. So it's a, it's a, it's a tight line to walk, but I think as people, as true grownups operating in 2021, I think that we at least needed to signal to the readers that we are aware. Yeah, that absolutely. Pain, you know, absolutely. My last question for you gentlemen is what do you hope readers, the fans of eighties rock, the music historian, journalist, folks like us, what do you hope the readers take from Nothing But A Good Time? 
I think one of the main things I hope, and we, we talked about it a little bit, is this idea that this music is, was a viable creative movement, that it was this thing where you don't have to like it, you can hate it, but you at the very least should respect that these were guys who were just super creative and a lot of them were great songwriters and certainly a lot of them were great musicians and super talented musicians. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that this music gets picked on a lot for is as we were saying earlier, that it's this kind of corporate creation and it's slick and it's just all surface, you know, nothing below it. And that was really, I think, one of the things that we tried to show, certainly in the first half of this book and then going through the entire book is like, these guys, like we said, like nobody had, these weren't guys that just kind of fell into this or had a backup plan. Like the ones who did it and the ones who succeeded at it were full on committed. And that was every part of it, the creativity, but also just the commitment to their instruments and their songwriting to really do this and to do it with, with everything that they had. And, and I would hope also that just people, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, most people probably don't have the time nor would I advise maybe spending four years of your life on a project this big, but, you know, we did. And I, my experience I would, that I would hope people take from it is like that everyone really mostly, I, I would say like 97.5% of the people we talked to were incredibly cool. So like I got to live this real fantasy of like, what would it be like to go interview everyone in every band that I liked <laughs> when I was a teenager? Yeah. You know, I wonder if they're cool. And I think you really do get a sense from this book of the specific in people that were involved, not just the bands, like, oh, what was, like, you, you will get a sense of like what Jeff Labar was like and what Brian Forsyth from Kicks was like. And you, you, I think you actually do sort of get to know these people. And I think like that was a, a, like a great gift I gave myself doing this book is getting to like spend time with these people and talk to them. And they were also incredibly pleasant and generous. And I think it comes across in the book. And like, if you were a fan of this music, you kind of will hopefully emerge from the book feeling like you got to hang with these people. Yeah, it definitely gives you that vibe for sure. And uh, guys, it was great speaking with you. I appreciate the time. Nothing but a good time is available. So uh, thank you guys again. For the Music Universe podcast, I'm Matt. And um, buddy, thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and pick up the book. Uh-huh.